0: Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Welcome to another episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. My name is Ryan Daly. In this episode, I'll review issue three of Black Canary's series from the 90s, wrapping up the hero worship story arc. I'm also going to give you a very condensed overview of her early solo adventures from the Golden Age. Before I get to the reviews, I had a thought about Laurel Lance, the current canary on the TV show Arrow. One of the things that's bothered me about Laurel is the fact that she's a lawyer, now specifically working in the district attorney's office. I said last time I didn't think she could ever become Black Canary because she just didn't have the mindset or the instinct, let alone the training, which continues to be an issue in the show. But now that she is a costumed vigilante and a DA, she doesn't remind me of Black Canary. She reminds me of the Kate Spencer version of Manhunter that came out around 2004, I think. I never read that series. I heard it was good, but it didn't appeal to me. I don't really like crime-fighting superheroes who deal in law enforcement in their civilian identity. I think that whole idea of Manhunter is really dumb. I think Nightwing becoming a Bloodhaven police officer was about the dumbest thing I had ever heard up to that point. To put on a costume and fight crime outside the rules of law enforcement requires a suspension of normal moral development. You have to put yourself above and beyond the law to do that. How then can you function as a servant and an officer of the law without coming across as a total hypocrite? How can Dick Grayson protect and serve the people as a cop by day and by night put on a costume and do all the things he needs to do because the cops aren't good enough? He's not only disrespecting the police, but he's undercutting his own moral authority. And as a costumed vigilante, all he has to stand on is his moral authority. It's the same for Kate Spencer as the Manhunter and Laurel Lance as the Canary. I don't have the same problem with Daredevil, however, because Matt Murdock is not a prosecutor. He's an advocate. He's not an agent of the federal or municipal government, so he's not double-dipping in that crusader pool, necessarily. Likewise with She-Hulk. Yeah, she's a lawyer, but she's not a crime fighter. She's an adventurer, be it with the Avengers or the Fantastic Four. That's just something that occurred to me tonight as I was watching the latest episode of Arrow. I hope they can find a way to reconcile this part of Laurel's character and take her out of the DA's office. Well, she can always open a flower shop. Back in episode 2, I covered Black Canary's first appearance in comics, which occurred in the Johnny Thunder feature of Flash Comics number 86. At the time, Johnny Thunder was much more of a humor character than a superhero. In addition to his magical genie, Thunderbolt, Johnny was surrounded by cartoonish supporting players. His buffoonery often led to him accidentally thwarting criminals. Once Black Canary showed up, however, the tone of the Johnny Thunder stories changed. She appeared four more times in his adventures after Flash 86, and with each appearance, she supplanted more and more of his comedic tone. Thunderbolt became more and more marginalized as Black Canary became Johnny's crime-fighting sidekick. Then it became obvious that she was the brains, the beauty, and the brawn, and Johnny Thunder was just in the way. With Flash Comics issue 92, Johnny Thunder was booted out of the magazine, and Black Canary received her very own solo feature. At the end of 1947, Black Canary made a guest appearance with the Justice Society of America in the pages of All-Star Comics. In February 1948, she appeared in three different comics, including her first story as a regular member of the JSA in All-Star issue 39. She had a solo adventure in Comics Cavalcade issue 25 that depicted the first and only use of her superhuman ability to control birds when she recites a poem. Yeah, for one brief, not-so-shiny moment, Black Canary could control birds. Her third appearance that month was in the aforementioned Flash 92, the premiere of her ongoing feature that would last until the book's cancellation. For the first time, Black Canary dominated the cover as she dramatically burst through a paper circle held by the Golden Age versions of The Flash and Hawkman, the two stars of the book. It's an awesome cover that celebrates Black Canary and welcomes her to the forefront of the comic book crime fighters. The story, The Huntress of the Highway, in Flash 92, established a number of fundamental elements of the Black Canary that had never been shown in her earlier appearances. The first thing the story did was provide her a civilian identity. By day, the Black Canary was Dinah Drake, a single, attractive, and dark-haired woman who ran her own flower shop in an unnamed city. The blonde hair of the Black Canary was retconned to be a wig, part of Dinah Drake's disguise, so that other people, specifically her romantic foil, wouldn't crack the secret of her double life. Said romantic foil was another major aspect of Black Canary's life that was brought in right from the start of her solo strip. Larry Lance replaced Johnny Thunder as the earnest but less-than-competent man in Black Canary's life. A poor private investigator who set up his office in Dinah's flower shop, Larry Lance flirted with Dinah, but he was fascinated by and borderline obsessed with the Black Canary. And who could blame him? His investigations frequently put him in danger, and Black Canary always came to his rescue and helped him catch the bad guys. By Larry's way of thinking, the canary had to be interested in him to always have his back the way she did. This bit of dramatic irony worked because Dinah Drake did love Larry, and as the canary she wanted to protect him, but then, since he was far more interested in her alter ego, Dinah could bust Larry's chops about needing a woman to do his job. As a pseudo-sidekick, Larry worked in ways that Johnny Thunder never could. He was smarter, better looking, and more physically capable than Johnny. Johnny. He would have been an alpha male in his own story, but he wasn't as smart, as good-looking, or as physically capable as the Black Canary. As often as he backed her up, his primary function in any given Golden Age story was to discover some nefarious scheme or be put in danger himself, leading Dinah to change costumes in the back of her shop and save the day. In this way, Larry served a similar role as characters like Lois Lane and Steve Trevor. The third main element of Black Canary's world, established in her solo stories, was the flower shop. Throughout the decades, her store would change names and cities, but in the Golden Age, it was simply Dinah Drake's flower shop. It served as home base for most of her stories, especially with Larry always hanging around claiming that he was saving rent on an office by having his clients call him on her work phone. Characters need a home or a headquarters, some place that we can readily identify as their own. If every Batman story just had the Kid Crusader fighting in warehouses and alleyways, it would be hard for the reader to ground him or herself. The world is too big, it's disorienting. But a place like the Batcave or the Daily Planet or Avengers Mansion puts us in a familiar setting every month. Putting Dinah and Larry in the flower shop every issue was comforting, and it made the characters more real and less a servant of the plot. As for the Black Canary stories in Flash comics, every one was written by Robert Kaniger, and they are very formulaic. This was an era where continued readership and continuity were hard to even imagine, let alone write for, so each story followed the same general plot beats across six, seven, or eight pages. The stories typically involved Dinah and Larry stumbling across a dead body or some kind of crime. Dinah would change into Black Canary to investigate, At some point, she would get knocked unconscious and wake up with Larry in some kind of elaborate death trap. Black Canary would free them with a trinket or tool hidden behind the Canary medallion on her choker, and together they would stop the crooks. Sometimes the story would have Black Canary framed for the crime, but generally, every issue went down just as I described. What Black Canary severely lacked in these stories were memorable villains. Her adversaries were garden-variety crooks, killers, and thieves, and none of them ever made more than one appearance. There was one story, however, that almost gave us something that you could call a Black Canary rogue. In a story called The Mystery of the Crimson Crystal in Flash Comics 93, the blonde bombshell must face off against a whole group of brainwashed women in red-hooded cloaks, The women all belong to the Cult of the Crimson Crystal, which is led by a nefarious turban-wearing ringleader called Swami. When the story concludes, though, Black Canary and Larry Lance discover that Swami is an alias, that he's not even Indian, he's a small-time crook named Bullet Ben, and his hold over the women is broken. The story is silly, but the fact that Dinah and Larry recognize Bullet Ben suggests they've encountered him before, so that could have been retconned as a recurring villain. Also, the visual of these brainwashed women in crimson cloaks is striking, and that's a type of antagonist that I would love to see returned. So at some point, I'm going to start a feature on this podcast called Black Canary's Adversaries, where I catalog her villains, and I think I'm going to include The Cult of the Crimson Crystal and Bullet Ben on that list, because they look a little different and they had more potential than any other crook she faced in Flash Comics. One more regular feature of Black Canary's adventures was the crazy fact that every story saw Dinah knocked unconscious. Seriously, every one. That seems insane today with what we know about head trauma and concussions. Still, every time, Black Canary recovered, persevered, and foiled the crime. All of Black Canary's appearances in Flash comics are collected in the hardcover Black Canary archives. If you like the character, I highly recommend getting the book. You can probably find a cheap copy online. It also includes two of her team-ups with Starman from The Brave and the Bold and a two-part story drawn by Alex Toth, which is very, very nice. Her adventures with the Justice Society are collected in All-Star Archives Volumes 8, 9, 10, and 11. At the moment, I don't have Volume 10. That's no longer in print. But hopefully I can get it sometime, because I want to cover those issues soon. Canary Issue 3 is cover dated March 1993, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the issue came out on January 19th of that year. Trevor Von Eden drew the cover again, and this time we see Black Canary in action, kicking a man in the face. She has a knife in one hand, while the man wields two short swords. She's putting her boot right under his chin. It's a pretty powerful-looking kick. Or it would be if the image was shown from a different angle— but Von Eden draws the man blocking half of Dinah's body. In fact, his body, which is completely blacked out in silhouette, takes up about half of the page. It hurts what should be an action shot cover because it just looks like a big black blob of spilled ink on the cover. Hero Worship Part 3 is written by Sarah Byam, penciled by Von Eden, guest-inked by Pam Eklund, lettered by Steve Haney, colored by Judy Lockman, and edited by Mike Gold. Last issue, we saw Jacob Warsman hire an assassin guy to murder Sally, a street-walking prostitute who Worsman used to poison other street people. This issue picks up where last issue left off, with the assassin guy holding Sally against a wall in a dingy alley and Black Canary standing there saying, you won't get away with it. Um, The assassin guy's name is Tyson Click, spelled K-L-I-K, That will not be revealed until the last page of this story, but since it's not a dramatic reveal, his name isn't important and he's never appeared or been mentioned before these issues, so I'm not going to wait until then to reveal it. I'm going to refer to him as Click in this review, because it's better than always saying Assassin Guy. Uh, Click's outfit is a little fanciful, a little more interesting than a normal hired killer. He's wearing a black Victorian-style cloak or long coat with a big collar and a half cape. He's also sporting a puffy white cravat. The impression, I think we're supposed to be getting a Jack the Ripper vibe from this guy, which is pretty cool, you know? Finally, Black Canary has something you can call a supervillain or at least a rogue in this series. So, Click kind of laughs off Canary's threat and tightens his grip around Sally's throat. Canary says, Then if I'm going down, my friend, I'm going down fighting. To which the reader ought to respond, What? Click didn't threaten Dinah. There was nothing in that scene about taking her down. He was going to murder Sally. Can we not even get to the first fight scene without making me roll my eyes at the script? Anyway, Black Canary leaps forward and clicks kick, knocking him to the ground. He pulls out a switchblade and swipes at her leg, managing to get the blade stuck in the heel of one of her boots. Get it? Stiletto heels? Yeah. Canary takes out a knife of her own and slices the stiletto heel right off of her boot so she can move. I'm not sure where she got that knife. Maybe in one of the pockets she told the homeless guy in issue one that she didn't have. Uh, She kicks Click in the face again, and then takes off her damaged boot so she's not stumbling around. Click half-heartedly tosses the switchblade that's still stuck in the boot heel at her. Then he pulls out two short swords. I'm not sure if these are supposed to be a specific type of weapon. The blades look like they're about 18 to 24 inches long. There's no hilt or grip protection on the hand. I think they look like a cross between Japanese wakizashi blades and machetes. Click goes after Black Canary with the swords, and now she's fighting on the defensive. This is considerably more dangerous for her. Sally, meanwhile, observes the fight from her perch on... You know what? I have no idea where they are now. Are they in an alley or a warehouse? Sally looks over her shoulder for some way to help Black Canary, and she spots a stack of metal barrels and cans. Using a lighter and an old broom, she starts a fire in one of the barrels and then positions it on the edge of the... something, whatever rooftop, overlooking the fight. Down below, Click has gained the advantage on Black Canary and presses one of his swords to her throat. The blade starts to draw blood, and that's both a literal and figurative sore spot for Dinah. She thinks there are some things a woman will only suffer once referring to the time she was kidnapped and tortured in the Longbow Hunters. Feeding on the memory of that past trauma, Canary summons her strength and pushes Click off her, shoving him into a trash can. Click gets up, saying, "'Funny, with all your scars, I took you for the masochistic type.'" At no point prior to this has the script or the art suggested that Dinah's body bears the scars of her abuse in the Longbow Hunters. It's interesting that Click would notice them... He asks her if she likes it rough, and she kicks him in the face twice in consecutive panels. First, she kicks him in the face with her left foot, and then she kicks him in the jaw with her right. For those of you keeping track, that's four times Black Canary has kicked him in the face or head in this story. Five if you count the cover. During the most recent kick, he drops one of the swords, and she snatches it in the air. This leads to a full-page splash on page 11 of Black Canary raising the sword above her head, ready to bring it down on click. Boy, oh boy, Trevor Von Eden should not have been doing these splash pages. This is another really ugly piece. Dinah looks crazy. Her hair is all over the place, and different colors, and her breasts look like bigger hazards than the sword. I've seen a lot of artists in the 90s try to draw a bladed weapon coming straight on at the viewer. It never works. It never looks like a deadly weapon. Just a trapezoid. And the bottom third of this page is taken up by Click's horrified face in a horizontal profile. This is an awful page, and I'll make sure to put a scan of it on the blog so you can judge it for yourself. The very next page, however, looks a hundred times better. I cannot explain what's happening in the art on this book. Black Canary stands over Click with the sword tip pointed at his chest. Even though there's no telltale lines around her, I think she looks like she's shaking. She's clearly rattled by some post-traumatic feelings of her previous assault, and she almost killed Click in her rage. But she stopped herself in time, and she's starting to collect herself while he begs for his life, saying she can take the girl and not worry about him. When Canary looks around for Sally, Click draws a tiny pistol from the sleeve of his coat. Man, this guy is just full of concealed weapons. He aims the gun at Black Canary when suddenly a fireball lands on him. Holy crap, remember when Sally started that fire in a barrel like seven pages ago? Apparently, she's been holding the barrel on the edge of the roof this whole time, just waiting for the right moment to drop it, and it just happened to be when Click drew a gun on Canary, when he just happened to be directly beneath Sally's barrel. Canary sees Sally on the rooftop and shouts for her not to run. So, of course, Sally runs. She runs across a rooftop and nearly falls to her death, climbing down a rain gutter, but she manages to grab the fire escape on the building across the alley. So she runs across that roof. Meanwhile, Black Canary gets up to the roof and leaps across the alleyway. Sally climbs through a window and runs through a busy office. Black Canary chases her, but is halted by a snooty businessman in a scene that's supposed to break up the tension with a bit of humor. But it's not funny, it's just stupid. Black Canary chases Sally across a skywalk into a factory of some kind. She's screaming to Sally that she can help her, but Sally doesn't believe her, even though Black Canary has risked her life at least three times already to save her. While chasing Sally down the catwalk of the factory, Canary is struck in the face by an acetylene canister. Yes, Click is already there in the factory. Click, who was kicked four times in the head and had a flaming barrel dropped on his chest— Click, who stayed on the ground and had no way of tracking Dinah and Sally over three different buildings, managed to get to the factory first and get the drop on Black Canary, even though she was just in the middle of a catwalk overlooking the whole warehouse. He turns on the acetylene torch and tries to incinerate Canary. She rolls off the catwalk but catches one of the support beams, holding herself up. Somehow, she finds a chain that she's able to swing at Click's feet, tripping him up. He falls forward, slamming his face into the railing. That's concussion number five right there. Then for some reason both Click and Canary fall from the catwalk. Luckily at the last minute she reaches out and grabs the wall? What the hell am I looking at? Trevor Von Eden, Sarah Byam, one of you listen to this podcast and write in and tell me what the hell I'm looking at on page 21. What crap does Dinah use to break her fall? She just stops and slams into the wall. Then Click falls into her and they both hit the ground. Click gets up first and finds Sally hiding behind some crates. He tells her to come out of hiding and promises that he won't hurt her. He says she's a valuable asset to the company, but Canary tells Sally not to believe him. Sally, racked with guilt over her part in the death of some unnamed homeless bums, doesn't believe Canary or anyone can protect her from the law, so she surrenders to Click. Black Canary throws a knife at Click. Not sure where she got this knife either, but it's too late. By the time the knife stabs him in the back, he has already snapped Sally's neck. As the sun comes up over the hospital, Lieutenant James Cameron of Seattle PD comes out and tells Black Canary that Sally is dead. Tyson Click, on the other hand, is still alive. Cameron tells Canary that Click is an assassin with a file that goes back ten years. Black Canary is the first person to ever catch him. Dinah takes no comfort in this, however. She won't feel better until Click names the man who hired him. And thus ends Black Canary Issue 3 and the Hero Worship Story Arc. My first note about this issue is that the story is linear, it's all told in the present. We don't get any flashbacks to young Dinah. Her first adventure as Black Canary was wrapped up in issue two when she captured Blackbearded Larry and Moe the Bus Rider. That's an improvement. The structure of this story is easy to follow. There's nothing confusing about the plot only the dialogue and the character's decisions. Van Eden's art really, really falls apart in this action-heavy issue. The choreography seems great at first, with the knife stuck in Canary's boot heel. I loved that moment. It was such a funny, fresh, and natural kind of obstacle for the fight. But as the issue progresses, the fight becomes less and less plausible. The backgrounds become non-existent. There are some good panels in this issue, but none that are really great, artistically it's the weakest issue so far as for the story it's one extended fight scene but it's not terribly exciting because the stakes aren't important this issue highlights one of the faults of the whole hero worship arc the utter failure to tell me who sally is and why i should care about her even if she's not someone i should feel sympathy for i need to know why dinah cares about her i never get that All I get from Sally across these three issues is that she is too stupid to live. But there is a brief flicker of good in this issue when Click taunts Black Canary about her previous victimization, and she straight up loses it. Her throat is cut and she goes nuts, kicking him repeatedly, nearly slicing him in half with a sword. That emotion could have been played up for more effect, but we skip over it and get the stupid crap instead. Maybe the best takeaway from this issue is the assassin, Tyson Click. Black Canary has had precious few villains she can call her own. Her rogues gallery is padded with a lot of borrowed villains that originated as foils for Batman, Green Arrow, the Justice League, or Justice Society. There aren't many pure Black Canary villains, so it's always nice to find a new inclusion. And Click could have been an interesting villain, except he never got used again after this series. That's too bad, because his look is distinct-ish. Okay, he's not the first villain to embrace the Victorian look or a serial killer vibe, but the dual machetes is cool. We've also seen a bit of a Master of Disguise thing from him, and he's sadistic, he plays with his victim, he taunts Black Canary repeatedly. He definitely had the potential to be a major recurring villain for Dinah. Maybe some writer will bring him back someday? Hey, they brought back human flying fish... And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shoutouts to the people who promoted this show on social media. Um, Once again, a few listeners left comments on the Flowers and Fishnets blog. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary wrote, Like you, Count, I shied away from Arrow because of Smallville. I watched early Smallville, left when it became intolerable, and was only lured back because Supergirl made it on the show. But even then, it wasn't great enough for me to head to the darkish-looking Arrow, and I still haven't seen the show. Maybe I should give it a shot. I like the Flash character more and have been watching that show since its inception. My only feel for Arrow has been the crossover Flash episodes. If anything could lure me to Arrow, it would be Felicity smoke. The double canary wrinkle does seem interesting, so I was glad you covered it here. As for the second issue of the comic, the cover is odd. I have seen female characters drawn with unbelievable chests in the past, but this one defies physics. Either her chest is much more in the foreground than her head, suggesting a snake-like spine, or she is inhumanly proportioned. The flashback conundrum frustrates me just to hear you discuss it. Following along and interested, though. Look forward to seeing the rest of this series reviewed. And Chris Franklin on the Supermates podcast wrote... I watched all of Smallville, minus a few episodes in the season following the Doomsday arc, due to the god-awful wrap-up of that one. I believe the JSA episode brought me back, and the show really picked up after that. I'm way behind on Arrow. I have season two on DVD, but I've yet to watch it. I've only watched the Flash crossovers thus far from the past two seasons. To both Ange and Chris, and everybody listening, really, Arrow is an acquired taste. That's really all I can say. It embraces an unnecessarily dark tone most of the time, and the storytelling isn't terribly sophisticated. Everything about it is worn on its sleeve like a broken heart tattoo. You have to turn the other cheek a lot to actually enjoy it. And by a wide margin, the Arrow Flash crossover episodes last fall were some of the most enjoyable television I've seen in a long time. Even though it was painfully obvious that the writing team was doing a watered down world's finest, with Flash in place of Superman and Arrow standing in for Batman. I mean, that's exactly how the characters were written. That's how most of us would imagine a contemporary, but still genial, version of Superman and Batman getting together would play out. I do say that, though, with a certain degree of regret that a small screen team-up of The Flash and Green Arrow is going to be a better Superman-Batman team-up than the version we get in the movie next year. Uh, just in the nick of time, meaning just as I sat down to record this segment, I find that Diabolu Frank of the many blogs and Rolled Spine podcasts has left some comments, too. Let me sort these out. I finally started watching the episodes of Arrow I've been DVRing since before the start of the current season in anticipation of Ray Palmer's arrival. As it happened, these were the episodes that introduced Barry Allen, and I presume Cyrus Gold. As expected, Arrow has returned to his original conception as a blatant Batman ripoff, tone shifted to reflect the Nolan aesthetic, and soaked up to reflect its CW home. As with you, I'm perfectly fine with that, as the familiar Denny O'Neill liberal crusader was a putz. However, I appreciate the nods to the Mike Grell and later Grimmer series. Two episodes in, it's still kind of lame but tolerable. I agree that Felicity Smoke is the best part of the show so far, and anything to do with Roy Harper, the worst. Barry was okay, I guess. Frank is a big fan of Ray Palmer. He runs the Atom blog, Power of the Atom. I am too, and I'm sure Frank would agree with me that Brandon Routh's character on Arrow is not Ray Palmer. He's Ted Cord. I firmly believe that's who he was intended to be. Cord Industries was mentioned a few times in seasons one and two. The character so-called Ray Palmer on Arrow is a CEO, he's a technologist, a cybernetics whiz, he's having an affair with the CW's equivalent of Oracle. These are all characteristics of the Blue Beetle, not the Atom. I think what happened was the Flash pilots succeeded beyond the wild expectations of Greg Berlanti's team, and they decided instead of introducing another street level human crime fighter, they can really push the sci fi fantasy element of this universe. Thus, Blue Beetle was quickly recast as the Atom, while still retaining all of the personality traits and characteristics of Ted Cord instead of Ray Palmer. Frank goes on, referring to one of my music selections from episode 3. Juliana Hatfield was one of my favorite singer-songwriters in the 90s. A particularly unpleasant concert gig and a perceived lack of personal development going into the aughts saw me set aside her music for much of the past decade. My Sister was her big radio hit, and I was sick of it even when I was into her. But at least it wasn't that tune she did on My So-Called Life. Uh, I've got a Juliana Hatfield mix. I like her. Yeah, my sister is probably the most commercial-sounding of her songs, along with Spin the Bottle, but I really like both those tracks. I'm also a fan of Close Your Eyes, Might Be In Love, and Choose Drugs. Uh, She has a really cool cover version of Sting's Every Breath You Take, if you can mentally separate the song from what Puff Daddy did to it in the 90s. Um, As for the song from my so-called life, that's called Make It Home, and I listen to that song every Christmas because... Don't judge me. Frank continues, The script sounds like a bad period TV bad badness. How are you going to round up enough hookers and bums to commit voter fraud of such a magnitude as to impact elections in a major metropolis? Having done so, how do you explain the hundreds of bodies that would subsequently turn up after you murder them into silence, even though they'd probably be handy when you're looking to get re-elected in two to four years? Sounds like you'd create a major infrastructure problem just from all the corpses blocking drainage systems and holding up garbage collection. Wouldn't they be better off angling a politically biased voting machine company to collect the results or get thousands of butterfly ballots thrown out on various trumped-up technicalities? Lacking a crystal ball? How about a history book? Didn't at least one of our presidents have a large constituency reporting from beyond the grave? If only Sarah Byam had treated Chinatown as reference material, the way Oz tales have been endlessly remix-cycled, this arc might have been at least tolerable. Alliterative male title. Is the story folks are talking about with a werewolf the same as the one I've got where Green Arrow and Black Canary features crossed over in the same issue and featured something that looked more like a bear? Mike Nasser art? Uh, nope. The issue you're thinking of, Frank, is World's Finest 245, the one right before what Chris mentioned. 245 has a story about a man-bear that starts in Green Arrow's story and concludes in Black Canaries. 245 does indeed have Mike Nasser or Netzer on art, and it also features Dinah taking her clothes off. Bless her heart. Easy to confuse those two. Uh, Frank goes on, Anyway, I hope you cover the new 52 Black Canary soon, because I just realized I don't know what her deal is. Was her mom still some form of crusader? I know she was on Team 7, which was a paramilitary thing, but that's it. If that's all she is so far, now would be the perfect time to mix all the best elements of the two-ish canaries and create a stronger, singular, ultimate incarnation. I have notes. I suppose I'll have to cover the new 52 Black Canary before her series debuts in June. I'm not looking forward to that episode because it's going to be a whole lot of me bitching about Dwayne Swierzynski. And I already did that for 19 blog posts when I reviewed Birds of Prey. You're right, Frank. The New 52 would have been the perfect time to mix all the best elements of the Canaries to create a stronger, singular, ultimate incarnation. But, just like with Hawkman, they failed utterly and shamefully. I will get to it, but that's probably going to be in May. Uh, That's it for this episode. Next week, my review of the Black Canary series is going on a brief hiatus so that I can cover two comics I really enjoy that feature Dinah and the dastardly Dr. Destiny. Can't wait to check those out. If you enjoyed this show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can also contact me with any questions or comments. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Black Canary Fan or at RyanDaily01. I use both with the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.